When I was in first grade, just learning to read, I had an aunt that was a school teacher. And so she gave me a gift. It was a faith promise box. It was a little white plastic box that was made to look like a Bible. And uh, when you opened this faith promise box, it was made to look like a Bible, and it contained Bible verses that were written on individual cards. They were intended to be read and meditated upon and memorized. So the very first Bible verse that I ever memorized was when I was six years old. It was the first verse on the top of the faith promise book, and it was Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. It wasn't the whole verse, it was a part of the verse. And it read as follows, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. So I read that verse over and over again, initially had to have some help from my mother, but uh, she told me what the words were, what they meant, and so I read it and read it and memorized it. Well, I lived on a farm in Burst County, and from my particular bedroom, I had an incredible view of the Blue Mountains. I could see them out my bedroom window, and one night as I was saying my nightly prayers, it came to me what a neat thing it would be to pray and take those mountains away. And so that night I prayed and asked God to take away the Blue Mountains, and I went to sleep. Well, I, I woke up in the morning, and I remembered my prayer, and I didn't even look out the window. I just ran downstairs to tell my mom that the Blue Mountains were gone. So I ran downstairs, and I grabbed my mother's hand and took her out of the kitchen, around the back of the house, and we stopped and we looked there, and there were the Blue Mountains. And my mom said, why did you bring me out here? I said, I didn't think those mountains would be there. She said, what do you mean you didn't think the mountains would be there? I said, I prayed and asked God to take those mountains away. And he didn't. That, for a six-year-old child, was a moment of crisis of faith. I knew that I believed. All you needed was the grain of a mustard seed. My mother told me that was the smallest seed that existed. I just needed this much faith. I tell you, I had a whole lot more faith than that. I believed with my whole heart. I actually believed that those mountains wouldn't be there when I woke up, but they were there. So what went wrong? How had God failed me? Why didn't his promises come true? Well, as I grew up and I realized that was only part of the verse and there's more to it than that and understood the context, I realized that God had not promised me that anything in the world that I wanted to, to get done, if I had enough faith that it was going to happen, no matter how silly or ridiculous it was. That, that is not what God's Word promised. But my misunderstanding of God's Word and His promise 
was devastating for a period of time. It is so important that we understand God's word accurately and clearly, and especially his promises, for if we don't, they're going to be devastating to us. It's going to create a crisis of faith. We are not going to understand. Does not God keep his word? That is where our text begins this morning. If you look with me at John chapter 9, verse 6, it's the key verse. But it's not as though God's word has failed. It's not like God didn't keep his word. Now, why would that question ever come into mind? It's not as though God did not keep his word. Well, in the passage that was before us last week, if you look at verse 4, it said, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. The Israelites had received the promises of God. And it was their understanding that God had promised that every single Israelite would be saved. That's how the Jews understood God's promise. Every single Israelite would be saved. Paul had just been teaching in the first eight chapters of Romans that unless an individual, Jew or Gentile, believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to be lost. And he had just said that he would be willing to be accursed for his kinsmen according to the flesh, that it grieved him deeply that his fellow Jews would be lost. So there was this crisis of faith. How could it be that God promised that every single Israelite would be saved, and yet there are going to be Israelites who are lost? So this passage is about how God keeps his word and his promises do not fail. you look at verse 6, it says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Reason, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not every single Israelite shares in the benefits of the promise of salvation. The proof that God's word containing the promise and purpose and plan has not failed for it was not God's promise or purpose or plan to save every single Israelite. Now that is what is being worked through in this passage, but it has tremendous significance for us. It's not just an historical dissertation, but if God's promises to Israel could fail, they could fail to us. And not only that, God's promises to Israel are directly related to God's promises to us. So these are tremendously significant, important aspects of God's word. First, as we look at these proofs, God's word and salvific, I'm going to use this word time and time again, salvific. If you're not familiar with the word salvific, it simply means saving, saving. The salvific promises, the promises having to do with salvation. 
So God's word and salvific promises to Israel have not failed, and God's salvific promises to us will not fail, because God's promises have never depended solely on family relationships. God's promises have never depended solely on family relationships. If you look at verse 6, the premise is, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Israel is the name given to Jacob in a time of his spiritual transformation. Israelites was the name given to the physical descendants of Jacob. So where did this idea come from that every single uh, Israelite would be saved? There are many verses, but if you would fast forward to Romans chapter 11, verse 26 in your Bibles, and I have to move rapidly this morning because I've got an awful lot of material that I'm covering. If you look at Romans chapter 11, verse 26, this is actually the conclusion of the argument. It's two chapters long, nine, 10, well, three chapters long, nine, 10, and 11. Raised in the beginning, the conclusion is in verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. So it explains in what way we're talking about that all Israel will be saved. As it is written, and there's this, this now quotation of the Old Testament coming from Isaiah chapter 59, the deliverer was come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So they understood that God made a covenant with Jacob, and that them includes his descendants, and so the promise was that he would take away their sins. So if God made a promise to Jacob and to Jacob's descendants that God would take away their sins, therefore, all of Jacob's descendants would be saved. Makes sense. Reasonable. Not far-fetched. So you can see how they got there. But the point was that they were mistaken. That is not how the verse was to be understood. So now in Romans chapter 9, there is this argument from the Old Testament scriptures to demonstrate that God's promise did not include every single Israelite that was born. So the first proof has to do with Abraham, because they also believed that all the physical dependents of Abraham would be saved. <clears throat> so now back to Romans chapter 9, verse 7. It says, and not all children of Abraham, oh, excuse me, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Meaning that not every physical descendant of Abraham is included in God's promise regarding salvation. The fact that the promise did not include all the descendants of Abraham is demonstrated in the fact that the promise regarded only Isaac. If you look at verse 7. And not all children of Abraham, because they are offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And the salvific promise was with respect to Isaac. It didn't include Ishmael. The promise to Abraham was fulfilled. God kept his word. In Romans chapter 9, verse 9, it says, For this is what the promise said, 
Read it clearly, Paul is saying to the Jewish people. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So the promise is not only to Abraham, but it's to Abraham and Sarah. Ishmael was not born of Sarah. He was born of Hagar. So the promise was kept. It wasn't a promise to Hagar and Abraham. It was a promise to Abraham and to Sarah. Now the argument is taken a step further. The promise did not include both sons of Isaac either. If you look at Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 12, it says this, and not only so, but when Rebekah, that is Isaac's wife, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but of him who calls, she was told the elder shall serve the younger. So we want to look at this a little more closely. And as this text unfolds, we find out some important things. Namely, number one, both Jacob and Esau had the same father and mother. Verse 10. Not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived by one man. So these are Rebekah's children and these are Isaac's children. Okay? This is not like Abraham and Sarah. For there it was Abraham and Sarah, not Abraham and Ishmael. So the argument could be the difference is Hagar. They had the same father, but they didn't have the same mother. So the issue is Hagar, and that's why they are not included in the promise. So now it unfolds. Well, let's look at somebody who has the same mother and who has the same father. And we find out that there is a distinction. The elder shall serve the younger. Thus, the distinction between them had nothing to do with their physical birth. It had nothing to do with who their mother or father was. The distinction ran contrary to physical birth. For in the Jewish mindset, the firstborn was the most blessed. The firstborn would receive the inheritance. The firstborn would receive the blessings of the family, if you will. But here we find that it is the younger who's going to serve the older, which stands in complete contrast to the Jewish thinking of family order and who is going to be blessed. So we find that it runs contrary to the entire Jewish thought about family life and how blessings are incurred down through the ages. The fact is, it is not because simply that they are physical descendants of Rebekah and Isaac. In fact, there will be people saved who are not physical descendants of Abraham or Jacob. If you look at 923, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared before him for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So you don't even have to be Jewish. 
You don't even have to be a descendant of Abraham or Isaac. You don't have to be a descendant of Jacob in order to be saved. Gentiles who have no physical relationship to them at all are still going to be saved. Point being, and it's important for us to understand, God's salvific promises are not given on the basis of physical descent. Just as there is no ground to assert that every physical descendant of Abraham or Jacob would be saved, so too there is no ground to assert that God has promised to every believer that their child will be saved. That's important for us to understand because there are people out there that do believe that. They do believe that there is a covenantal promise that God has given that if you're a believer, your children ipso facto, will be saved. It's not true. It's not true. And I'm here to tell you this morning that if you have children that have died and they weren't believers, God did not fail you. God's promise did not fail. God's word is still true because God has not promised to save every single child of every single believer. So don't ever take for granted the salvation of your children. Never lose sight of how blessed you are and your children are if they come to know faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a blessing that is. And I fear, I fear that sometimes we just kind of assume that our children are going to be saved and we almost get a ho-hum aspect. Boy, we ought to be shouting. We ought to be jumping for joy. When our children come to understand the gospel and they put their faith in Jesus Christ for it's a work of God and it's a work of grace. Any theological construct that asserts that God has made a promise or covenant to save every physical descendant of the believer is false. Number two, the salvific promises have not failed to Israel and will not fail to us because they're not based on merit or deservedness. Notice Romans 9:11. And though yet not born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but of him who calls. God's choice of Jacob over Esau had nothing to do with their merit or deservedness in being chosen or rejected. One was not more deserving or of the or one was not more deserving or less deserving in, than the other in order to be saved. It was not as though Jacob had done something good that merited his being chosen. Look at verse 11. And though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good. So Jacob hadn't done anything particularly good in order to be saved. That includes foreseen faith. Nor had Esau done something that was of greater evil than Jacob that prohibited God from saving him. Notice verse 11. Though they were not yet born, had done nothing good or bad. So Jacob was not chosen because he was 
more righteous than Esau, and Esau was not chosen. In fact, he wasn't chosen. But it was not because he was less righteous than Jacob. The difference that existed between them was a difference in God's choice, God's purpose, or God's plan. Notice verse 11. And though they were not yet born, and had done nothing good or evil, or bad, in order that God's purpose, NAS translates it, God's choice, of election might continue. So when we talk about election, that word simply means God's choice. God's choice. God chose Jacob to be saved. That's what made the difference. That's why Jacob was saved. God, God chose him to be saved. The choice was not based on family lineage. The choice was not based on goodness or badness. The choice was based on God's purpose. God had a reason. God had a design for saving Jacob. Application. The fact that Jacob had not been chosen as a result of merit should give us a better understanding of the Old Testament biblical narrative. If you would read the book of Genesis, and many of you are reading your Bible through, as you read through Genesis, you're going to scratch your head at the accounts that have to do with Jacob and Esau. Uh, Jacob was a conniver. Jacob was a liar. Jacob was a deceit. And there's a lot of conniving going on behind the scenes with Rebecca and with uh, against Isaac. And there are all these, these stories, and, and you say, what is going on here? Answer? Rebecca is trying to achieve something in her own wisdom and strength. And she's conniving and scheming to achieve something that God has already said he's going to do and is going to come to pass. It's not because of her scheming and conniving. It's in spite of her scheming and conniving. It's not because of Jacob's deception. It's in spite of Jacob's deception. He's not chosen because he's good. He's chosen because of the grace and mercy of God. It gives us that understanding of the Old Testament. God made this choice before they were born. In fact, we found earlier that God made this choice before the foundation of the world. We can have confidence that our actions are not going to cause God's word to be fulfilled or to fail. For the promises are not conditional. They are based on a sovereign God, his choice, his purpose. And now thirdly, and I think for us what is most helpful and, again, mind-scratching uh, is the salvific promises to Israel and to us are made on the basis of God's sovereign purpose and love 
And it's for that reason his promises of salvation will not fail. Let me say that again. The salvific promises to Israel and to us are made on the basis of God's sovereign purpose and love. And it's for that reason his promises of salvation will not fail. Look at verse 11. And though they were not yet born and have done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's perfect purpose of election might continue. The salvific promises are made on the basis of God's sovereign purpose. It is precisely because God made the choice, and that choice is to fill his purpose, that we know his purpose will be fulfilled. Notice in verse 11, if you have the ESV, you have the word continue. That the purpose of election might continue. The word to continue means to abide, remain, or be fulfilled. It is the explanation of the distinction of the outcome of what happens in the lives of Jacob and Esau. It's a continuation. It is the fulfillment. It's the application. It's the reality that God had a purpose. And that purpose was that the elder shall serve the younger. Guess what? The elder serves the younger. Because that was his purpose. That was his choice. And all the scheming, conniving, and all that other stuff had nothing to do with it. For his purpose was going to be fulfilled. God's purpose is revealed in the following verse. Verse 12, she was told the elder shall serve the younger. This is not a mere prediction. This is not just something that God was aware of. This isn't something that God just is declaring because he knows the outcome. This is the intentional purpose, plan, will of God. God is declaring what he wants. God is declaring what he is going to do. The elder will serve the younger because I've ordained it to be so. It's got to happen. And guess what? It does happen. Because God's word doesn't fail. Because God's promises are kept. Because God is faithful to all his promises. Which brings us to the next point. And that is that the salvific promises are made on the basis of God's sovereign love. Let me say that again. The salvific promises are made on the basis of God's sovereign love. Look at verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is a quotation from the Old Testament, from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. These are all Old Testament allusions and quotations through here to demonstrate the fact that God's word doesn't fail. That God's promises are kept. So here it is. God's word in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. This verse to many is very shocking. 
this was incredibly shocking to the Jews. They believed that God loved every single Jew, that they were the chosen people. And so God loved every single one of them without exception and without fail. Thus, the salvific promise extended to each one. But now it said, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. It wouldn't have surprised them if it said, Jacob have I loved and the Gentiles I have hated. They wouldn't have blinked at that. In fact, they would have said, Amen. <laughs> That's true. That wasn't what their theology was. This verse is shocking to us because to think that God would hate anyone. For most people's theology today is God loves every single person on the face of this earth. And so it becomes shocking when it says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. But this verse doesn't come out of a vacuum. It isn't just there out of nowhere. <clears throat> I read a, a slew of commentaries <clears throat> in preparing my messages. I have over 50 commentaries on the Book of Romans. And uh, it's, it's interesting to follow the arguments and, and look at all the things the commentators do. And, and one thing that's very, very common is that many of the commentators will say there's a change in subject between Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 9. They emphasize the fact that there is no conjunction, uh, there's no particle there that no therefore, no and, no etc. And it just starts out uh, in chapter 9, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. So they say there's a new subject. No, there's a connection. There's a connection. Why does it say, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated? Because Romans chapter 8, the emphasis is on God's unfailing love. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect. Now you have to remind yourself that in the Jewish mind, that meant every single Israelite. Every single Jew. Who lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us, and they would understand that is the Jews, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, down to verse 39, nor hype nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So nothing can keep God from loving you is the promise. God's love is unfailing. God's love is unconditional. Nothing on the face of the earth or the heavens can separate 
us from God's love. Well, if that is true, why isn't Esau saved? Answer, God didn't love him. It's not that God stopped loving him because he was a scoundrel or because he was this or that. It isn't that God somehow ceased in his love for Esau. It's he never loved him. He loved Jacob. The point is that God's promise doesn't fail. His love doesn't stop. His promises are true. His word is true. But they misunderstood God's promise and his word in the same way that I misunderstood God's promise and his word when I was praying and asking for the mountains to be removed. The Jews made the mistake of thinking that the us meant every single Jew. But now here's, let's update it today. Here's the problem. In many Christians' minds, the us means every single human being. That God loves every single human being in the same way. Much has been written on the subject of God's love for Jacob and God's hatred of Esau. And I'm going to run through some stuff really fast for you here, but we'll get to the points. But <clears throat> there is a sense in which God loves all humanity. And there is a sense in which God has a special redeeming love for his own. In a comparative way, God's love for all humanity seems and should be described as hatred in contrast to the great love that he has for the redeemed. Now, let me just give you a verse to substantiate that. In Luke chapter 14, verse 26, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, same word, his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The degree of love that we're to have for God is so great that in comparison, it's like love to God and hatred of our own family members. There is a huge difference that is supposed to exist between our love for God and our love for our family members. It is profound that the admonition of husbands that they love their wives is founded upon Christ's love for the church. Many of you know this verse, Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Our love for our wives is to be a unique kind of love. Now, we know that we're to love our enemies and those that despitefully use us. 
But the love that we have for our wives can't be compared to the love that we're to have for our enemies. We are to be uniquely devoted and faithful to our wives in a way in which we are not uniquely devoted to any other woman. And the comparison is that we are to love our wives the way that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Jesus died for the church. Uniquely. Wonderfully. How we understand God's love is crucially important. God's word that teaches that God loves the world and God's love never ends does not mean that God's word is untrue and God's love has failed if some are lost. So what about John 3.16? How does John 3.16 relate to Jacob I loved and Esau I hated? There's an individual, Rob Bell. And he has written a book entitled Love Wins. Rob Bell is a graduate of Wheaton and a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary. Understands very well the evangelical position. He's written a book entitled Love Wins. How relevant and significant is that? Well, in 2011, Time Magazine named Bell on its list of the 100 most influential people in the world. Not just in Christianity. One of the 100 most influential people in the entire world. Rob Bell. His book, Love Wins. So what does that book say? I've read it from cover to cover. This is how it starts. Then listen carefully. First, and I'm quoting, I believe that Jesus' story is first and foremost about the love of God for every single one of us. It is stunning, expansive, expansive love, and it's for everybody, everywhere. That's the story. For God so loved the world. That's why Jesus came. That's his message. That's where the life is found. There are a growing number of us who have become acutely aware that Jesus' story has been hijacked by a number of other stories. Stories Jesus hasn't interested in telling because they have nothing to do with what he came to do. The plot has been lost and it's time to reclaim it. I've written this book for all those everywhere who have heard some version of the Jesus story that caused their pulse rate to rise, their stomach to churn, and their heart to utter those resolute words, I would never be a part of that. You are not alone. There are a million of us. I go on to quote. Millions of people in our world were told that God so loved the world, that God sent his son to save the world, and that if they accept and believe in Jesus, then they'll be able to have a relationship with God. Beautiful, but there's more. Millions have been taught that if they don't believe, they don't accept in the right way, that is, the way the person telling them the gospel does, that they were hit by a car and died later that same day, God would have no choice but to punish them forever in conscious torment in hell. God would, in essence, become a fundamentally 
different being to them in that moment of death. A different being to them forever. A loving Heavenly Father who will go to the extraordinary lengths to have a relationship with them would, in the blink of an eye, become cruel, mean, vicious, tormentor, who would ensure they had no escape from an endless future of agony." End quote. So the whole book is about how everybody's going to heaven. Everybody's going to be saved. Love wins. And he, in a very interesting and somewhat deceptive way, winds his way through the New Testament showing us how that love always wins. It does! It does! God's love never stops. God's love never fails. God's word is fulfilled. The problem is the presupposition. And that is he loves everyone to the same degree in the same way. That God savingly loves everyone. He doesn't. He doesn't. Doesn't. So what about John 3.16? For God so loved the world. Does the world mean every single individual that ever lived? If it does, then you've got to take Romans chapter 9, verse 13, and rip it out of your Bible. It tells us. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now I could go through a long theological construct and prove that out of the book of John, but I don't have time this morning. I'm just simply saying to you, it can't mean every single person on the face of the earth, because we know that. He revealed that to us. So what does it mean? You know, it's really not very complicated. In the book of Revelation, chapter 5, we have this view of heaven. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's the world. You ransomed people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Not just the Jews, and not just the Gentiles. And Paul said in Romans chapter 1, that the gospel was for the Jew and the Greek, the barbarian for the wise, for any classification of people. Revelo Re Book of Revelation also teaches that people will be lost from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Listen to the words of Revelation chapter 13. Authority was given to it, that's the beast over every tribe and people and language and nation, the exact same wordage. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose names has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life 
of the Lamb who was slain. Those who are written in the book of life, they don't worship the beast. Those whose names aren't written do worship the beast. Out of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. The whole world in the book of Revelation is going to worship the beast. But not every single person. Not every individual person. Not those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Romans 5, 9 does not say that Christ redeemed every single person. Listen again. By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It is so dangerous to take God's promises out of context, for they will ruin your faith, and they will destroy and make God's word untrue. John, uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that God is at peace with us. And to demonstrate that, and goes on to say in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The us is incredibly important. The us are those people of faith. The us are those who God loves. But God commended his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He bears our sins. And he loves us forever and ever. Conclusion. The point of the passage is, and it's rarely looked at, because everybody fought uh, everybody fights over election and this word of love and everything. The point is, God's promises don't fail. God's word doesn't fail. What God says he will do, he will do. Because he is faithful. Because he is almighty. Because he is all powerful. God's word will not fail. Therefore, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Because he loves you. Because he died for you. Because he has risen and intercedes for you. If you are one of his own. Why is this so important to understand? Why do we need to realize that God does not love everyone salvifically? For the same reason it was so important for Paul to communicate this to the Jews. God's word hasn't failed. If we don't see certain people coming to faith, we should not panic and ask the question, what went wrong? If not everyone is coming to faith, we shouldn't jump to the conclusion that God's word has failed us or that God's promises are untrue. We should not lose confidence in the word of God as the instrument of achieving God's salvific plan. We should realize that God 
didn't promise or even intend that every single person would be saved. That wasn't his plan. John 17, 3, and moving on to that, I can't spend all that time this morning. That wasn't his plan. But we should not lose confidence in his word. We live in a day and age in which people are scheming like Rebecca did, like Isaac did in the Old Testament. People are scheming to find ways to make the gospel more effective. How can we reach more people in the sense that we see so many people that don't believe? What can we do to make them believe? How do we need to act differently? How do we need to conduct our worship differently? What do we need to change about God's word in order to make it more attractive so that more people will believe? And many people have lost confidence in God's word. And they have given up preaching as being archaic, as being irrelevant today, as Timothy says, preach the word, be diligent in season, out of season, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering doctrine, for the time will come when men will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, okay, that you're to preach the word of God in season, out of season. We're in time of out of season. Because of this concept that God loves everybody and we don't see everybody being saved, so we better help God along here a little bit. And it doesn't seem like his word is working today. But, listen to the applications. It's not as though, John 9, 6, it's not as though the word of God has failed. John chapter, Romans, uh, that was Romans 9, 6. Romans 10, 17, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What's going to bring people to faith? It's the word of God. Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. My word will not fail. It will accomplish my will. It will accomplish my purpose. And the preaching of the gospel will save every single person that God has chosen to save. So don't abandon it. Don't give it up. And don't change God's word as though it's no longer effectual. It is. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And all those that God gives faith will be saved. All those that he has redeemed, not one will be lost. There will not be a drop of blood shed in vain. Everyone that Christ was sent by the Father to save will be saved. As Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer, not one is lost. Not one is lost. Because God's love is unending.
it wins. How blessed we are for God to love us. Never lose sight that that is such a precious redeeming love. As we sang those choruses this morning, that us is so, so important. Redeemed us, loved us. It's us. It's us who are the people of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your great goodness to us. We thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for your salvific plan. And I pray, O oh God, that we would have enough understanding to know that your purposes do not fail, that your promises never go unfulfilled, and that your word is never in error. Your word accomplishes what you have intended. Your promises are true and faithful. Lord, help us to rightly understand your promises, that we see that to be true, and so that we will stand on those promises and will not move away from them. We won't question your faithfulness, nor will we, faithful, nor will we challenge the faithfulness of your word. So, Lord, give us the confidence in the gospel to share it, to preach it, to witness to our friends, our loved ones, our children, and to the uttermost ends of the earth, knowing that you will save a people. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I ran over, so we're not going to sing our closing hymn. We're just going to move to the uh, uh, majesty. Let me just say, this probably, this can raise some questions about God's justice, about righteousness, about holiness. Um, keep those questions. Romans chapter 9 addresses every single one of them. We're going to talk about the justice of God. We're going to talk about the goodness of God. We're going to talk about the mercy of God. We're going to talk about all the questions that people have about election. But the most important thing this morning is that God loves us. And his love will not fail. And when you make that to everybody, you have really corrupted an understanding of God's love and of redemption. And you end up with a Rob Bell that says, everybody's going to heaven. And unfortunately, they're not. Let's uh, stand and uh, we'll sing the uh, uh, majesty together. <laughs>